is it? You're going to eke out a hard living from the soil, and then you're going to return to the soil. So have a nice life. So the question that we need to ask is this, and I think it's a very relevant question. What then makes life worth living, if anything? What is it that makes life worth living? In spite of the efforts of science and society to make life a gentle walk in the park, we still have to walk to school in snow, up to our knees, uphill, and into the wind, both ways, don't we? Uh, Well, maybe we exaggerate a little bit, but it often is extremely tough, and life is rarely easy for very long. But there is something that makes life worth the living, as we'll see today on Verse by Verse. Welcome. Pastor Steve Kreloff is teaching from Genesis chapter 3, and the topic is the fall of man. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We come today to the middle part of Pastor Steve's concluding sermon in this series. There's a humorous saying that confidence is the feeling that you have before you understand a situation. Actually, that's often very true, isn't it? Before we can be saved, though, we need to know that we are sinners needing salvation. And so before we know that, we're pretty confident, right? Almost no one, before God opens their eyes to the true situation, thinks of themselves as sinners. We don't know how high God's standards are or how badly we have missed them. But thankfully, God has a way to fix all of that. Here's Pastor Steve with today's lesson. I didn't think I was really a wicked sinner. I didn't think I was a sinner until I I came to know Christ uh, shortly before that because I thought I had a misunderstanding what sin was. I thought sin was what all those bad people did. They get written up in the newspapers. And I didn't have any of that. And yet I had to come face to face with what the Bible says sin is. Sin is disobeying God's word. Whether you know it or not, you are responsible to know his standards. Sin is doing your own thing. Sin is going your own way. Sin is being the master of your life. Sin is rebelling against God's authority. That's what sin is. And because a lot of people don't understand that, either they don't feel guilty when they should feel guilty, or else they feel guilty about things that they that, that are really piddly little nothing things that they shouldn't feel guilty about, man-made cultural rules. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah put it this way. He said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That's what sin is. It's doing your own thing. It's going your way as opposed to God's way. And in Adam's case, he ate what was forbidden. He just clearly violated God's word. And and because of this, now watch this, because his sin was in eating what he should not have eaten, his punishment involved eating. Remember, the, the punishment precisely fits the crime. And notice, as we look on in verse 17 as we continue, here's here's the punishment. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the fields. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken for your dust, and to dust you shall return. Because Adam's sin was in eating, from now on he would experience painful toil in eating, to eat, to get the food. Why? Because God cursed the ground. It wasn't that eating was going to be hard for him, but getting the food to eat would be difficult. God cursed the ground, which sentenced Adam to suffer a a lifelong, toilsome labor until he died. That was his punishment. 
You see, prior to the fall, the earth, the land cooperated with Adam. There's no problem. He was to cultivate it, but uh, work was a delight. Work, work is not a problem. It's the labor now in a sin-cursed world that is the problem, but work in and of itself uh, is a virtue. And notice, for example, Genesis chapter 2. Verse 9, out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that's pleasing in his sight and good for food and the tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God caused it to grow. And then in chapter 2, verse 15, it says, and the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The ground cooperated with Adam then, but now it was cursed. It would never be the same. And now it would produce thorns and thistles. And instead of cooperating with man, it was now, it would now reluctantly yield its fruit. It would yield its fruit. No question about that. Or else we couldn't live. But it would reluctantly yield its fruit. And Adam is depicted, and here's the picture. Adam is depicted as a struggling, broken farmer whose very meals, which come from the earth. Remember, he didn't go have a store to go to. Comes from the earth. They're spoiled by the fatigue of his labors. Whatever he he gets is just, you know, from exhaustion. And his life isn't going to get any better. It's not going to get any better. You know why? Because he's going to die. That's what God said. It's going to be a hard life, and then you're going to die. You're going to return to the ground. Now, there are several significant truths and principles contained in these verses, two in particular that I want you to uh, to think about and I want to camp on. Number one. Here's one principle. Because of sin, we should understand life is hard. Life is hard. Life is filled with pain. It's filled with sorrow. It's filled with troubles. Life is not easy. And and some of you may say, hey, I know that. You don't have to convince me. But there are other Christians who are living in a a la-la world. They're, They're dreamers. They're dreamers. They don't think that this is coming to them. Somehow being a child of the king uh, eliminates, they think, all of the toil and pains of life, or it ought to. And they're looking for some spiritual zapping and experience which is going to elevate them above the difficult circumstances of life. It just doesn't happen. As Christians, we need to face this fact, not be surprised by the troubles that we have. Some of us are troubled because we we see ourselves suffering even more than some non-Christians, and we wonder about that. We're surprised by the troubles that we face in life. We need to understand we live in a hostile environment, and therefore Murphy's Law is an everyday occurrence. You know Murphy's Law, if something can go wrong, it will. That, that's an everyday occurrence. You know, I think that ancient man understood this principle a lot better than, than we do. For, for example, look at um, Genesis chapter 5, just two chapters over. Genesis chapter 5, just a few generations removed from, from Adam, you have a, a, a man by the name of uh, Lemek, who is the father of Noah, and here's what he said in verse uh, verse 29 of Genesis 5. It says, now he called his name, that is his dad, called his name Noah, saying, this one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of, of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord God has cursed. Now, he didn't quite understand all of it. He probably thought that Noah might be the Messiah. But he said, this is the one. He's going to give us relief from this horrible life that, that we have because the earth is cursed. Not only that, Job, a little bit later, Job made this statement. He said, for man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. As natural as it is for sparks to fly upward, that's how natural it is for man to have trouble. You see, I, I, I tend to think that it's only 
in our modern age of progress and technology that man is obsessed with things going well. He somehow thinks he's going to find an answer in science to make his life so much better that he doesn't have any problems, to avoid all the unpleasantries, so that everything goes smooth. So when troubles, what happens living in a dream world like that, when troubles don't go away, people tend to get frustrated, really frustrated, because they're not prepared mentally for the trials of life. And Christians can sometimes do that as well. But I want you to know, as believers in Christ, we are told not that we'll avoid our troubles, but we are told to greet our trials as friends. James chapter 1 tells us that. Greet them as friends. Why would you greet some, something like that as trouble as a friend? Because it's good for you. It's good for you because it, it builds character. That's what life is about. Being holy, not being happy. This is the happiness syndrome. I want to be happy. I want life to go smooth. I want everything to fall in place. The Bible doesn't say that. We live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. And whether you're a child of the king or not, uh, you are in a fallen world. Jesus came and lived in a fallen world. And we do too. Things are not going to be great until the curse is lifted at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Society and politicians will, will continue to promise us a utopian age. It just isn't going to happen like that. It only happens when Jesus returns and is going to usher in the kingdom. So, so I think that's an important principle to understand. Because of the fall of man, life is hard. Life is hard. It's difficult, no matter how many advances we make in science and technology. Now, a second truth, I think, related to this, to this principle is this. The world that we live in is just wearing out. Do you know that? It's wearing out. It's not getting better. It's not getting better. There's no such thing as evolution in the sense of things are getting higher and higher and better and better. They're degenerating. They're getting worse, not getting better. Death and decay are realities. In fact, there's a, a law for this. The law in science is called the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics, which basically states that all things left to themselves eventually wear out, run down, grow old, decay, and pass into dust. Not a pretty picture, but that is reality. This isn't only the earth's experience, this is our experience as well. That's what was told of Adam. You're going to wear out. You're going to die. Adam was told that he was going to die, that he would return to the dust from which God took him. Now, think about this for a moment. When you consider God's punishment on, on Adam, and ultimately on all of us, ultimately on all of us, it's, it's pretty bleak, isn't it? Life is hard. You're going to work to in toilsome labors. It's filled with uh, misery, and then you die. Not what you came to church to hear about, is it? You're going to eke out a hard living from the soil, and then you're going to return to the soil. So have a nice life. So the question that we need to ask is this, and I think it's a very relevant question. What then makes life worth living, if anything? What is it that makes life worth living? If life is filled with pain and troubles, death and decay, all kinds of misery, difficult times, and then you die, then why live? Why live? Why bring a child into this world? Why continue? What hope is there, if any? What, In other words, what gives meaning to life? What gives meaning to life? You know what? I'm not going to tell you right away. Adam, though, knew the answer. I am going to tell you. But Adam knew the answer to this question 
and it's really found in verse 20. You, you may not pick it up right away, and that's why we're here to explain this. But look at verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. You say, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. That's the answer? That's the answer. And when you first read this verse, it really looks like it doesn't fit, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't just look like it doesn't belong there. It's out of place. There's no connection. I mean, God is pronouncing judgment on Adam, and he's naming his wife. What kind of a guy is this? Sins affected his mind in a way that we, you know, can't even fathom. And let me tell you what this verse is about and why this this does fit in. In fact, it's it's a very profound verse. There is no disconnecting thought here. It does connect, though it's not very obvious at first. You may not realize this, and I am going to build a case on this, so so think with me. You may not realize this, but this is the first time in Genesis we are told Eve's name, the woman's name. Now, I've been referring to, to her as Eve because everybody knows what her name is now. Even, even non-Christians understand Adam and Eve, so I've been using it. But had I not used it, uh, had I not said uh, the name and you had not ever heard of her name, you would not have heard of this unless you've read further. She has not been called Eve until this point. She has been called female. She's been called a helper suitable for Adam. She has been called a woman. She's been even called a wife, but not Eve, until this very moment after God pronounces judgment for Adam for his sin. Now, the question is, why name her now, and what does the name Eve mean? Eve does not mean evening. There is a name that uh, this name means something. Uh, let's let's deal with the second question first. What is the meaning of the name Eve? Why call her Eve? The name Eve simply means living. It means living. It's not evening, it's living. And verse 20 says that Adam named her living. He named her Eve because she was the mother of all the living. He named her living because from her all the living would, would come. And that's true of us. We all come from Adam and Eve. Now, here's the deal. Here's where it comes together. God has, in context, historically, just told Adam that he's going to die. Not a pretty picture. Life is hard, and then you're going to die. Came from the soil, you're going to return to the soil. But just prior to this, in verse 15, what we call verse 15, we read this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, that is to Satan, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And right after that, God says, you're going to die, Adam. Now, what is this? In other words, Eve is going to give birth to one who in some way would be the future deliverer, the future savior, who would save them from sin. Now, I don't think they understood all that. In fact, I know they didn't understand all that we understand about this, that that Savior would be Jesus Christ. He would go to the cross. He would die for all of our sins. And in that way, Satan would be defeated. His power would be gone, as I told you last week. He's basically been, uh, his power has been taken away from him. He cannot uh, send anybody to hell for sin because sin can be forgiven because of the death of Christ. He basically is awaiting execution. Now, he gives us a lot of trouble. He tempts us, but he doesn't have power over us. The fear of death is gone for a believer. So, in verse 15, God spoke of Eve's children, even though he had just told Adam, he's, he's told Adam, you're going to die. He said, Eve's going to have children and one specific child would crush the devil's head and defeat him and death. And you know what? Adam believed God. That's the hope. Adam took God at his word, even though he'd just been told he's going to die. He knows he's not going to die until Eve has children. 
She's going to have children. And one of those children is going to be the Savior, the Deliverer. Adam believed God's word about the future Deliverer who would defeat Satan and would take the sting out of death. Even before Eve became pregnant, Adam exercised faith in God by naming her Eve the mother of all. That was the demonstration of his faith. Adam was a believer. I am fully convinced that we'll see Adam in heaven. In fact, not only Adam, it wasn't only Adam who believed, it was Eve as well. Notice chapter 4, verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Literally, it's this. I have brought forth a man, the Lord. She thought Cain was the deliverer. Now, she was wrong. He wasn't the deliverer. He turned out to be the first murderer. But at least she was anticipating that one of her offspring would be the one who the Lord would send. She had faith just like Adam. So verse 20 is really about Adam's faith and hope. Even as he's been sentenced to death, he faces a life of blood, sweat, and tears, and then you're going to die. He believed God. And you know what? This is what gives hope to us. Thousands of years later, we still have hope in our lives, even though life is still difficult. Life is still hard. We face pain. We face troubles. Dave sang before about God's faithfulness, but we only know of his faithfulness because life is tough. When we need him, he encourages us, but life is hard. This is what lifts a Christian's life above the futility of decay that's all around us. It's our faith, our hope, in the Lord. If you don't have that, then you are missing so much. You are missing. In fact, many times when I, tr- when I try to bring comfort to a family that's lost a loved one or at a funeral, they'll say to me, I don't know how the unsaved get through this. I don't either. I don't either. They somehow do, but they do it in such a depressed, bleak manner. But Christians don't have that. We don't have to have that. We believe. We look back at the, at the Messiah who's come, and we believe that he's already come, that he has saved us, that this deliverer has delivered us from the penalty of sin. And he is delivering us from the power of sin. And we look for him to come again at any time to deliver us from the very presence of sin. He's going to save us physically from the sin-cursed world and, and these bodies that are fallen and are decaying. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, our inner man is being renewed, but the outer man is decaying day by day. Day by day. Let's look at, uh, and hold your place in Genesis 3, but if you look at Romans chapter 8, Paul makes this very, very clear. This is the world we live in, but there is great hope for us. Great hope for us, and you need to live above the circumstances in the sense of not letting them get you down, and not living in a fool's paradise like, like imagining that there are no problems. There are problems. But this is how we face them, with great hope and confidence. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Isn't that, you know, we ought to meditate on that. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to even be compared to what we're going to experience in glory. What a tremendous truth. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That is to say that creation, which was cursed because of man, continues to be cursed, but they're longing for the curse to be lifted, and that will be lifted when Jesus returns. And uh, uh, the revealing of the sons of God, that I take it that that means us, we're coming back with him, we're going to be changed, and so forth. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And that's the key, in hope. It is a cursed world that we live in, but it's in hope. What is the hope? 
that the creation itself will also be set free from the slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, and we know this by faith, that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. You may think that creation is beautiful and the world we live in has such, such beauty, such beauty at times. However, it, it's nothing compared to what it was or what it will be like. And not only this, Paul writes in verse 23, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. What does he mean by that? God has given you the down payment of the Holy Spirit, a touch of hope, a touch of encouragement, a touch of strength by the Spirit of God who indwells us, which is the promise of better things to come. And they will. They will come. Just look at this. Verse 24, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. What's he saying? He's saying that life is hard, and we suffer now, but that's not it for us. We don't just work hard and uh, toil, and then everything decays, and then we die. For a believer, we have great hope that we will someday, uh, when we die, either either uh, when we're raptured or when death takes us, we're going to be with the Lord, uh, with him in, in his presence, and then we are, at, at least at the rapture, the resurrection, we will experience a resurrected body. So we are waiting for ultimate deliverance, but with perseverance, we press on because we know life is more than death and decay. And I think that's a great encouragement to us. Great encouragement to us. If life to you is one big drag, one big hassle, it's really because you don't know Jesus Christ. Now, you ought not to come to know Christ or pray to receive Christ just because you want life to be fun, because it doesn't necessarily fun, but you ought to pray to receive Christ because you want to be forgiven of your sins and and you want to escape hell. You want to go to heaven. However, before you go to heaven, Jesus will give you great hope and encouragement in a world that, that has no hope and very little encouragement. So the first way that God dealt with Adam was he sentenced him to hard labor and then death. There's a second way he dealt with Adam in relation to his sin, and that is the forgiveness. He forgave Adam. Not only did he punish him and sentence him, but he forgave him. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife Eve and clothed them, actually just says his wife, and clothed them. In response to Adam believing God's word about a coming deliverer, a savior, God now kills two innocent animals, I don't know what kind, perhaps sheep, and he puts clothes on Adam and Eve. Remember, after they sinned, they realized they were naked and they, uh, their, their dignity was stripped from them and they knew shame, and then they covered themselves with very inadequate uh, fig leaves. Not because the fig leaves couldn't cover them, but because God said they were inadequate. They were not right to cover. They should have been covered, but not with that. We'll find out why leaves are not an appropriate covering on the next Verse by Verse. There's a lot more to it than just durability or comfort. Thanks for tuning in. Pastor Steve Kreloff has been teaching from Chapter 3 of Genesis about the fall of man. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Stop in for a visit if you're in town on a Sunday and looking for a place to worship. The address is 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater. You can find out plenty more online at lakesidechapel.com or call 727-441-1714. That's 727-441-1714 or online at lakesidechapel.com. 
If you want to listen again to today's class or catch up on earlier ones, they're free to stream or download by going to the Message Archive page at versebyverseradio.org. Also, there's a giving page for your convenience if you'd like to help us keep Verse by Verse on the air. We can't do this without generous listeners like you who help to finance the airtime and production costs involved with these programs. So thanks for your prayerful gifts. The web address again is versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. Have you ever wondered what it would be like if we never physically died? There's a good reason that God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. Pastor Steve will discuss that on the next Verse by Verse. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's versebyverseradio.org. Has your life been turned upside down? Beyond the White Picket Fence by Sherry Rose Shepherd is a lesson-filled love letter to anyone trapped in a pit of pain. Whether you are going through divorce, betrayal, abandonment, or disease, there is a way to come through it 